the last 40, 50 years, we've been under this uh, delusion. We have put profits at the center of everything. And, you know, people and the planet and communities and society, all of them are supposed to serve profits. So we've gotten it backwards. You know, we need to put people, the flourishing of people at the center of everything that we do. And of course, that includes the flourishing of the planet and the flourishing of communities. And then profit has to serve that. I think that's the world that we are moving towards. But I think the current experience the last few years has accelerated that shift. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. Have you ever felt like something was fundamentally wrong with a situation or a conversation, but nobody else seemed to see it? You know, that feeling a little bit like the story of the emperor's new clothes where everybody else seems to be applauding, but there's one important truth that nobody seems willing to talk about. Now, that is exactly how my guest today felt from a very young age about one of the most influential ideas in the world. This idea dictates how we structure our nations, organizations and communities, the wealth and the power available to solve some of our biggest problems and, at its most grassroots level, the price of a loaf of bread. And that one idea is capitalism. According to the dictionary, capitalism is defined as an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit. Now, brief history lesson, since the birth of capitalism, approximately 200 years ago, the world's population living in extreme poverty dropped from 94% to 9.6%. Between 1990 and 2015 alone, free trade enabled 1.25 billion people around the world to escape extreme poverty. That's 50 million people per year and 138,000 people every day. Yet what comes with this idea, the flip side to the capitalist coin, has been argued to be the diminishment of people and the planet into assets to be bought, mined and then discarded. A celebration of greed that eventually led to the GFC and the trillions of dollars of marketing spent every year selling the unattainable, often to the vulnerable. To put it lightly, it's a fairly powerful idea. Raj Sisodia was a young man growing up in India when he first came across the impact and the idea of capitalism. And he came to the conclusion that there had to be a better way of doing business than just surviving to chase money. That capitalism still has the potential to be one of the greatest ideas that we've ever had. But first, it needed a complete overhaul. One that puts people at the center of all decision making, that makes the primary purpose of business to heal rather than to harm, and one that, as it eventually turned out, when put into practice, leads 
to companies outperforming the S&P 500 index by up to 14 to 1. That idea is conscious capitalism. Raj is a founding member of the worldwide conscious capitalism movement. F.W. Olin, distinguished professor of global business and Whole Foods market research scholar in conscious capitalism at Babson College. He has written 11 award-winning books on fostering a more humane, caring, and enriching way of doing business, including Firms of Endearment, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller Conscious Capitalism, Everybody Matters, which was named one of the best books of 2015 by Forbes, and his latest book, The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. His work has also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Fortune, Financial Times, Washington Post, CNBC, and so, so many more. I was actually first introduced to Raj through Bob Chapman, CEO of Barry Waymiller, previous guest on this podcast, and Raj's co-author and the focus of the book, Everybody Matters. You're going to hear Bob's name come up many times during our discussion, particularly as somebody whose business practices and personal leadership practices completely embody both conscious capitalism and the healing organization. In this conversation, Raj and I dive into the role of the healing leader post-COVID, including why the virtual workplace may just be the catalyst needed for a new era of business, why part of moving forward consciously as organizations and as leaders involves first going backwards, shining a light on the aspects of ourselves and our teams that remain frozen and afraid. The power of space, and I just I feel like this one is coming up in every conversation at the moment, to reassess what's working, what's not, and to replenish your energy so that you can double down where it counts. Why capitalism can still be the greatest idea we've ever had, and what needs to change in order to move forward. Finally, Raj's own journey of influence, what he's learned about creating and sustaining a global movement, why it led to a healing journey of his own, And my favorite new phrase, how to have more courageous patience when it comes to seeing our ideas take hold. On a personal note, this this conversation honestly went nowhere I expected. I arrived literally with two pages of notes and questions about the future of capitalism. And I left with a deep appreciation for the humility, grace and courage of Raj himself. You know, in any journey of influence, at some point, you're going to face your words head on. If you teach patience, you're going to hit the places where you have none. If you teach courage, you're going to find those moments where yours disappears. And if you talk about healing organizations, eventually you will need to face a healing journey of your own. Raj is a human being that has had the courage to do both. The courage to drive the new ideas and stories that will move the world forward and the courage to re-examine the old ideas and stories that are holding him back. Now that is real influence. So enough from me. Time to sit back, stride out, cycle on and enjoy the visionary wisdom of the man himself, the incredible Raj Sisodia. Welcome to the podcast, Raj Sisodia. Thank you, Julie. Delighted to be with you across all the oceans and across all the time zones. 
you know, that's been one of the beauties of holding tight to the podcast over the past two or three years that when the world has felt more separate than ever and internationally we felt more separate than ever, this podcast has been this incredibly lovely bridge for me to different people across different oceans going through different versions of the same situation. So yeah, all that to say that it's lovely. It's lovely to have you here today. Um, I'm going to kick off with the same question that I usually kick off with. And that is if there's one idea that's been having a lot of impact on your thinking right now, that's been influencing your thinking. And for those of you who listen frequently, you'll know that the reason behind this question is that people who are on the outskirts, people who have incredible ideas are usually the ones that come across them before we do. You have radars for things that are coming. So what's one idea that's been having a lot of impact on your thinking? Well, it's kind of a hybrid idea. So there's two... uh... Uh, two books recently, two books recently that have impacted me a lot. So this is a a, a book by a New York Times reporter. It's called The Man Who Broke Capitalism. It's about Jack Welch. And I think even in Australia, you may have heard of Jack Welch, the former yes. General Electric, who kind of created a paradigm uh, that then resulted in all the problems that we are trying to address through conscious capitalism, right? So he you know, he created this world in which it's only about shareholders. It's about laying off, you know, downsizing. It's about deal making. It's about financialization. It's about share buybacks, etc. And that has then led to all of the suffering, you know, that we are contending with uh, for people, for communities, and for the planet. All of that, right? And we are kind of coming out of that, and we're trying to come out of that days. But you know, he's kind of reflecting the Milton Friedman mindset which is that the only purpose of business, the social purpose of business is to increase its profits. So uh, we just had him on our podcast uh, yesterday and I've been immersed in that. Now, meanwhile, last week I I met a, uh, a scholar named David Sloan Wilson. I was speaking in Connecticut at our chapter and he was uh, in attendance there. And he is one of the world's foremost evolutionary biologists and a deep, deep uh, expert in, and they say after Charles Darwin, I mean, he might be like the biggest figure in that in that whole field. And he is now applying those ideas into economics and into business. And I think we are, we are <clears throat> on the uh, edge of coming up with a new theoretical basis for what we have been talking about in conscious capitalism. So it's evolutionary biology, which is based upon some very, very simple and they are incredibly powerful fundamental principles that Charles Darwin first talked about, right? That uh, what you find in nature is that, first of all, there's variation, right? That even within the same species, that different uh, representations of that species are not the same as each other. Uh, There is selection. In other words, the qualities that each of those entities have uh, makes a difference in terms of their ability to thrive in the world, right? So there's variation, there's selection, and then there's replication. So the the offspring of those entities tend to be somewhat similar to those entities themselves, right? So just those three core principles alone start to then explain how every form of life uh, on this planet evolved, whether it's plants to bacteria, all the way up to uh, human societies, right? And and those ideas are are very much relevant to the world of business and capitalism. And that's what I'm learning from David now, having conversations with him, David Sloan Wilson, that we can apply this and create a much richer 
foundation where economics is rooted in scarcity in competition in individualism right and and we can actually show that the world actually operates and success really comes to those who are cooperative who think not only about the individual but also the collective right and that it's not rooted in scarcity that there's plenty uh, for everybody so so that's kind of the intellectual stimulation that I've had and I'm, I'm really just anxious to dive more and more into David's works and then have a conversation with him. And so just because now I'm curious, um, how would you take that, you know, evolutionary biology and use it to rework capitalism or use it to rework kind of the fundamental principles of the business markets? So what it says is that there are many different kinds of companies. There are millions of companies out there, right? So there's tremendous variation. And the mindsets of the leaders behind those companies varies tremendously, right? So we've got tremendous variety out there. But then we have a world in which some of those approaches are succeeding better than others, right? And my research in firms of endearment showed that these kinds of companies, conscious companies, outperform the market nine to one, right? So that is the selection that's happening now, especially as people are evolving in their own consciousness. As a customer, I'm looking for something different than I'll use used to look for 20, 30 years ago. As an employee, I'm looking for meaning and purpose in my work. 30 years ago, I didn't even know what that word meant, you know, purpose, right? As investors, I'm looking for an impact, uh, not just a return, but a positive impact uh, in the world, uh, et cetera, right? So the selection process whereby people are gravitating to these different kinds of players is changing. And then, of course, success breeds success. So there's a lot of replication. And that's what our movement of conscious capitalism, in a sense, is, is part of the replication process, which is to say, here's the, uh, here are the four principles, the four pillars of conscious capitalism. Here are companies that succeed. And here's how you can apply those right, into your business. So all of this will then portend a rapid uh, evolution of business as these approaches start to become more widely known and then widely replicated. And so it is, it's a fundamental misreading of Darwin where people talk about survival of the fittest and equate it to the law of the jungle, right? It's only who is the most vicious and who is the most uh, able to climb over each other. It is actually uh, the most, uh, the, the ones who are the most adaptive, right? Are the ones, so the most ones who are cooperative. And it's also about uh, you know, economics is all at the individual level. This is about saying that groups that have these qualities are the groups that are going to rise, and groups are companies, countries, and other kinds of social organizations. That's that's fascinating, especially that part about the natural selection. That natural selection is moving towards naturally selecting companies and organizations and leaders as well that fit with a different set of criteria now, who are purpose-driven, impact-driven, collaborative. Um, and it's interesting, one of the things I was going to ask you about today was this shift that's happening now that I'm definitely seeing out in the business world as a, as a consultant and as a coach, this shift as leaders try and bring workforces back together again. You know, there's been some, I was in an organization a couple of weeks ago, they lost 50%, 50% of their workforce. So they're now desperately trying to not only recruit, but bring, bring people back into the office, glue teams back together again, and they're trying to do it all remotely. 
Do you feel like this situation over the past couple of years and, and what's happening now, what leaders are facing now is, is actually fueling this shift that you're talking about? Because it feels like the perfect time for this. Yeah, I think it is. It is accelerating those because I think what the pandemic did to a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people, it gave them pause and it caused them to think about their work in a different way and to recognize, you know, there's a lot of inertia when things are just going the way they're going month after month, year after year, but when suddenly you're forced to step back, right? And I remember a few years ago, I was in a silent retreat for four days and just those four days had a life-changing impact on me because you were able to step back. Right? And I think uh, the ability that many, many people have had has given them the chance to rethink and, and elevate their gaze to say, it's not just about surviving. I want my life to be meaningful and I want to make a difference, etc. So people are able now to think about those things and companies are having to respond. And I'm surprised every time I drive by a McDonald's or something like that, even here, I see the signs, the big signs, you know, as to how much they are trying now and the pay has increased and the benefits have increased and they want to offer all kinds of things now you know people are competing i think it's 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 long overdue because one of the things that jack welch and his way of being did was completely disempower workers and made them into interchangeable parts and costs to be minimized that was the mindset and as a result worker pay has stagnated for 40 years but even more than that the respect and dignity that they have been accorded also has not uh, has not been appropriate. Right? So I think now we're we're starting to get back. And you've talked about Chapman, right? And you know that's all about putting people at the center. And ultimately, that is as Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines said, the business of business is people. Yesterday, today, and forever. Right? And those people are, of course, our customers, but they are even more importantly our employees and their families. Right? That everything you know, it's like a we need a Copernican revolution where in the last 40, 50 years, we've been under this uh, sort of uh, delusion. We have put profits at the center of everything. And, you know, people and the planet and communities and society, all of them are some, you know, supposed to serve profits. So we've gotten it backwards. You know, we need to put people, the flourishing of people at the center, right, of everything that we do. And of course, that includes the flourishing of the planet and the flourishing of communities. And then profit has to serve that. I think that's the world that we are moving towards. Uh, but I think the, the current experience the uh, last few years has accelerated that shift. I believe. I, you know, when I was diving into your your work and you've got a huge body of, of incredible work and what I love about, you know, your books is there's a, there's a thought, I call it a thought train that goes all the way through. There's a through line there where you can see the evolution of your thinking as as time as time has gone on. But there's a very particular... Um, theme, which in my language, I would call, you know, the evolution of business and leadership to its, to its highest potential, to the place where it's capable of going. Where did that theme begin for you? You know, we were talking off air before we came on that you've spent a lot of time in introspection recently. You've been writing almost an autobiographical, can't even say that word, an autobiographical (laughs) book. Um, yeah, where, where did all this begin for you? Where did you start to get so passionate about this topic? Well, you know, um, I uh, came to the U.S. as an adult. I was, I was here as a kid for a few years, but then went back to India. But I came to the U.S. in 1981 at the age of 23 to get a Ph.D. in business. 
And I landed in New York. And by the way, that's the same time, literally within weeks, when Jack Welch became the CEO of General Electric, right? And this was the dawn, dawning of that decade, which came to be known as the decade of greed. Right? If you remember the famous speech from Wall Street, greed is good, right? Uh, all of that. It was uh, Reagan's America, right? It was Thatcher in England. I mean, we were very much in that mode where uh, it was all about uh, individual success and success was defined as money and power. Right? So I came into that milieu and, you know, as a student of business at one of the leading PhD programs you know, in the world at Columbia University, um, I found that I was not at all inspired by what I was being taught. And I was getting a PhD in marketing. And I was this idealistic kid, you know, just if you look at innately who I was as a, as a very small young child, I, you know, I was idealistic, I was very trusting, very harm, harmony seeking. I had certain traits, right? And I wanted the world to be a certain way. And of course, my father was the opposite of all of those things. So he tried to convince me to, to be the opposite of who I was. But I had those deep down within me. And I found that the world of business did not feed my idealism at all. You know, it was in fact making me cynical. And I had this inner dialogue that my father got a PhD in, in plant science, in, uh, in genetics, right, in, in uh, plant breeding, uh, because he was trying to cure world hunger. Well, that was his dream. And I get a PhD in marketing. And I'm just trying to sell some more potato chips, you know, <laughs> or any other, you know, useless uh, product, right? Uh, I had a kind of a, uh, a lack of purpose and lack of meaning, even uh, to some degree, a, a level of shame associated with my profession. I did not feel that I was in an inherently self-justifying profession. And so looking at it with outsider eyes, uh, I, also, I always saw the flaws. I said, wow, America, you know, we're going nuts here with the amount of money that we spend on marketing and the, how much it pervades your life, right? The New York Times was about four inches thick and you know, 80% of that is ads. There's ads everywhere you look. Um, you know, the average American is exposed to like 2,000 uh, advertising messages a day. Your mailbox is full of all the stuff that goes into your trash can, right? There's coupon. I mean, all of this, it seemed like mania, marketing mania to me. You know? And so I became very quickly, my research focus became on ethics, efficiency, effectiveness, productivity of marketing. What are we spending? What are we getting? And over the years, the story became worse and worse. Spending was going up. Customer satisfaction was, was plateauing at a low level. Customer loyalty had fallen deeply and customer trust had plummeted over a period of decades, even as spending it. And the, and the biggest eye-opener for me was in 2004, I did a study, um, two studies. One was quantifying the amount of marketing that there is. And I found if you add all of the elements up, it was a trillion dollars that year in the US alone. Now that the GDP of India that year was 700 billion. So I said, how is it that a billion people are living on what less than what we're spending here on ads, coupons, and junk mail? And what are we getting for that, right? And what are companies getting, what are customers getting, and what is society getting? And the answer in all of those cases was not much, and in fact, a lot of negative consequences. So I had all this frustration, I had angst, I had some degree of shame. Um, you know, I was kind of the doctor no in the marketing profession, you know, pointing out all the ills. <laughs> not a very popular position, right? But I did a book called Does Marketing Need Reform? And the answer was a resounding yes. And then I started a book um, still coming from that place. It was called The Shame of Marketing. 
and it was really my shame it was not you know that i was feeling about it but i was going to talk about all the ways in which marketing does bad things you know like using women's bodies to sell products and that leads to eating disorders and body dysmorphia and depression uh, aggressive marketing to children to elderly people you know there's a lot of abuse right and society and the rise of obesity and diabetes and all these things because of overconsumption that that we are putting out there so all of that led me to uh, to that book project unfortunately my mentor gave me the best advice he said raj in this country people want to hear about the solution not the problem and that simple insight was profound for me because i said wow i've been looking at the problem i've been writing about the problem for 10 years now so i just turned it around i called it in search of marketing excellence i said companies spend a ton of money and get lousy outcomes which are the companies that are doing the opposite uh, customers love them and they're not spending a lot of money on marketing that's how i started to find examples of companies like whole foods you know which were spending 90% less than the industry average and yet had fanatic customer loyalty right and i said well, well how does that happen what are the how are you managing the marketing function well they don't have a marketing function they didn't have a chief marketing officer they didn't have an ad agency you know the very little money that they spent was spent at the store level and most of that had to do with their community uh, outreach so i found that it wasn't just the customers it was the employees that were also loyal and trusting and loved working there supply you know i found about six companies that that fit that mold you know? and i found that there were certain characteristics and that's how i discovered the principles of conscious capitalism that they are stakeholder oriented they care about all of the uh, stakeholders not just investors or customers but employees their families communities suppliers uh, and then what held everybody together was this shared purpose and common values that everybody associated with whole foods believes in 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 how food impacts your health and also the health of the food system and the planet right? is all connected customers believe in that employees believe in that suppliers investors right so there was shared purpose and values that that aligned everybody and then kind of there was the glue that held them together and then the leaders were different they cared about the people and the purpose they weren't just about power and money and uh, the cultures people actually look forward to going to work they don't say thank god it's friday when can i get out of here you know they they actually find their work to be meaningful and enjoyable so i discovered those things and then i remember the distinct moment when i was writing some of the stories of these uh, companies and i was so deeply moved by that you know what they were doing for their employees or their families or community that i literally had tears in my eyes while I was trying to write and I was at a writing retreat in Pennsylvania here and I said to my co-author David I said David I've never had tears of joy connected to my work I have often experienced frustration and anger and other emotions but not joy and I think my body is trying to tell me something that this really matters right that I as I said I've never been inspired in my MBA program or in my PhD program right the story of business was not to me an inspiring one until that point and now suddenly I said wow i had no idea such deep humanity can exist inside a for profit publicly traded company and then of course when we did the financial analysis that was icing on the cake we found that these companies outperformed 9 to 1 over a 10 year period and as loud became an incredibly compelling case like why would you not do business in a way that benefits everyone and results in more financial success like how could you justify any other way so i was on fire with that and i had a vision for what i was calling the institute for new capitalism and that's how i met john mackey the ceo of whole foods who read the book loved it and invited me to spend a day with him and at the end of the day i shared my vision 
And he said, that's my vision as well, but I like the phrase conscious capitalism. So that's how we started the movement. But from that day on, my whole focus shifted. Uh, I, I was now aligned with who I was and how that uh, you know, related to my purpose now, which I just define as my purpose is to bring heart, healing, soul, and courage to business and leadership so that we can build a better world that works for everybody. Right? And that's what I've been living since 2007 now. And I'll just fast forward to 2018. So that year I was writing the healing organization. And as you said, there's now a trajectory from firms of endearment to conscious capitalism and that everybody matters. Shakti leadership, which is about the feminine, masculine, feminine integration, uh, the field guide, and then the healing organization, which is kind of the ultimate expression of this energy. And I was writing that book and, uh, you know, four women, friends of mine told me, you're writing about healing, but what about your own healing? You know, have you done work on yourself? And I said, I don't have time for that. I have a book deadline. <laughs> Those pivotal moments in life where if you're lucky, that kind of message comes in and then you hear yourself say, I don't have time for that. And there's that bell ringing where you think, I don't, ha I don't have time to do one of the most fundamental things <laughs> that we're here to do. And it, again, if you're lucky, that's enough of an alarm bell. You don't require the rest of the kicks up the butt that come after that. And so fortunately, I listened to them because, I mean, it was true. I was running from, I finished one book and immediately have another one lined up and I'm traveling constantly and I just like no time really to, uh, to reflect. And so I took five months off, uh, delayed the book. I experienced, I said yes to a Himalayan uh, journey with the Shakti, uh, a, a spiritual journey with the Shakti group up on the India-Tibet border, you know, a deeply Buddhist region. I said yes to a silent retreat with uh, Peter Senge and David Cooperider and others in upstate New York, in a place called Peace Village, which was incredible. Uh, I also worked with a coach for the first time. And I said yes to Lynn Twist uh, in the Pachamama Alliance. She called me and said, you need to come on this trip. You're gonna learn more about healing in 10 days in the rainforest with shamans than you will in years of research. So I, I had all those experiences and they were profound. And, and my coach, after I told her the trajectory of my life and where I come from, this very feudal subculture in India, the warrior path, the tough relationship with my father, you know, um, and, and, and a wonderful relationship with my mother, though my parents are the polar opposites, right? She's pure unconditional love, my father is not, right? And he's all about uh, do my way or the highway. Um, and when I talked about all of that with her and she said, do you realize that you spent 45 years of your life trying to impress your father right, by doing the kinds of things that he, he valued, right? But then you've spent the last 15 years honoring your mother with your work because everything you've brought with all these books, you know, related to firms of endearment consciousness, this is all her energy. This is bringing love, compassion, caring, inclusiveness, forgiveness, empathy into business and leadership. And so that was really a profound gift for me to actually recognize that indeed I had been bringing, and I am more like my mother, right? But like many of us, you take your mother for granted and you take that mother energy for granted and you think what's needed in the world is more of the, you know, aggressive, dominating, you know, winning at all costs energy. And so that was a profoundly 
impactful thing. And then she said, does your mother know that? And I said, well, I didn't know it five minutes ago. So how would she know that? <laughs> and she said, you need to tell her that. And I said, oh, we don't talk like that in my family. You know, we talk about the weather and we talk about how, how are your knees feeling and, you know, all of that. Uh, she said, no, you need to call her. I said, well, my dad always picks up and he puts it on speaker. And if I say these things, he's going to say, what's wrong with him? Why is he talking like that? <laughs> she said, no, I don't care. You must call her. I said, well, I'm going to India in three weeks. I'll tell her in person. She said, your mom is 82. You don't know what happens in three weeks. You need to call her. So fortunately, I listened and I called her. And, you know, it turned into the most healing conversation of my life. And I think for her as well, because as soon as I said, Mommy, everything I've done that people have cared about and has made a difference in the world is because of what I learned from you and what you showed us. And she just started crying. She said, Raj, I am nothing. I am nothing. And I said, no, you're everything. You know, the world has enough of what, what my father offers, right, in terms of the way of being. But this was so, you know, she was... Uh, you know, it was healing for her as well because she had this sense of herself as less than, you know, because my father is this brilliant gold medal winning uh, scientist and she's only educated till the eighth grade and doesn't speak English. It's a very simple, innocent soul, uh, but pure love. In 62 years, never raised her voice to me, never, you know, all she did was love us and take care of us, you know, and that was an incredible gift. So... So it was a profound, uh, you know, healing moment for me. Fortunately, I recorded that conversation so I can, because both my parents died a year later, you know, in 2019. So. To pick up the phone in those moments, I know I've done personal development and workshops that have involved at some stage calling the people that you love and, and having, you know, those very raw and real heart-driven, heart-driven conversations. And it's the truth that if you don't pick up the phone in those moments, you you don't, you know, like you, something happens, life moves on, it doesn't feel right anymore, you're not in that energy anymore. So to take action in those moments can end up in some of the most healing, beautiful and unifying conversations of your life. Well, you know, one insight that I've had, oh, by the way, part of my healing experiences that year also included, I went to uh, the rainforest, I had an ayahuasca experience, right, which is uh, a, a psychedelic uh, that occurs naturally in, in, in those uh, uh, in those regions, right, and, and I had all these visions, incredible, you know, it gives you access to levels of consciousness you normally don't, and I, I received all this wisdom uh, from a source somewhere, right, I had gone there to learn about healing, and so one of those was the message that love that is not expressed is like a check that is never cashed. It doesn't do any good for anybody, right? You could be sitting on a million dollar check, right? But unless you cash it, what good is it to you or to the giver, right? To the receiver or the giver, right? So I've come to say, yeah, if I hadn't had that conversation with my mom, you know, I can't imagine I know how, how different it would have felt. And I had these other visions, you know, the centerpiece, well, one of the, I'll tell you two more. So one was, I saw a long line of people standing under the hot sun, like thousands of them. And at the end of the line was a tiny little woman. And all these people are waiting to get a hug from her. Um, and she's a real person, actually. She's Amma, which means mother. She's the hugging saint from India. She travels the world and just gives people hugs. 
Uh, people, people get a hug and then they walk away in tears. Why? Because they experienced unconditional love for many of them for the first time in their life. Right? Through that hug that she gives. There's some power in that. But the message I got as I was being shown this from above in my, in my mind, the message was that all these people who are standing in line, they could be hugging each other. That they have what they are looking for. You don't need to go somewhere else and find it. You know? That we humans have it for each other. We have what it takes for us to heal. Right? For each other and for ourselves. Right? So that was one, one message. We are the cause of our suffering and we are also the cure for it. Right? For each other. All the suffering in this world is caused by humans towards other humans and towards other life forms. So we are also the source of healing for that. And then the, the, uh, the biggest part of that night for me, it was an incredible setting. You know, we were on the banks of a river. It was a lunar eclipse night. We were lying on banana leaves. There was a shaman, you know, who was chanting and whistling and blowing after we had the ayahuasca. And I get this vision of four words floating in my, you know, something like that. And I like to make acronyms out of things. So this came as an acronym. So here's the list. Okay. Here's the, you came here to learn about healing. Here's what the world needs in order to heal. And the words were love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. So that forms the acronym list, right? L-I-S-T. Here's the list. That everything we do in, in life should come from a place of love. Even the harshest things that we have to do sometimes, letting somebody go, you know, or whatever it might be can be done with love and from a base of love. And that's what Bob Chapman's message is as well, right? The way he perceives, you know, somebody asking, what if you have to let somebody go? He said, okay, how would you do it if that was your daughter? How would you handle that? You, know? you wouldn't say, oh, we need to keep her on at all costs. No, she's not happy. She's not doing well. You know, Nobody's, she's going to be better off doing something different, right? We're going to help her find that, right? So again, you do it with love, so love. And then innocence. We are all born innocent, right? We have many qualities that we are born with, but innocence is one we all share. And then very quickly we get corrupted into the ways of the world. And it becomes about climbing over other people and using our intelligence to trick them and uh, manipulate them, and, right? Uh, we need, we don't have a choice when we are born, but later on in life we can choose a return to innocence that I will not act in a way that knowingly causes harm towards anybody. I will not abuse or exploit anybody, etc. Right? So that's a chosen innocence, the innocence on the other side of wholeness. Simplicity. We make everything so complicated. We hide behind complexity, right? The 2008 financial crisis was one of manufactured complexity, deliberate complexity of all those financial instruments that nobody understood, but people thought they can make money by passing it on to somebody else. So the idea of the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Right? There's a simplicity on this side, but there's a profound simplicity on the other side once we really understand something deeply. And then truth. What is our commitment to the truth? In our, our PhD in marketing, where we talk about the truth, right? Or in our politics, 
And the truth is, you know, Gandhi's autobiography was uh, my experiments with truth. He said, truth is more fundamental than peace because there can be no peace without truth. So I feel that was a gift that came to me and through me, right? I have no idea where those uh, words from, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's love and truth, you know, kind of holding innocence and simplicity within them. And, and to me, that's a, that's a message for all of us in business and otherwise, you know, in life. So. Mm. Yeah, the one of the bridges there that I've just been reflecting on as you've been talking between the experiences that you're having now in your own personal journey and also your work was, and again, I've got it written down here to talk to you about at some point, is you have said that... Um, as leaders, one of our first responsibilities is to heal the past, to become a healing organization, to become a healing leader, to become a conscious leader. We need to heal the past before we can move forward, which is exactly what you're talking about there, you know, the mirror in your own personal journey. And one of the things that I'm seeing a lot out there at the moment is this feeling of, okay, you know, the, the brakes have come off now. Um, you know, we're full steam ahead again. You know, jump back on the bus with with full steam ahead again. Where's the where's the danger in that? Where's the danger in not doing exactly as you have done, taking that five months, pausing to reflect on what has been, talking to people about what has been, talking as if to your daughter, you know, what's what's happened for you? Where are you at? And then finding the appropriate place to move forward. Yeah. I think there is a danger there if we don't uh, utilize this moment for the gift that it offers. If we are anxious to return to business as usual, you know that that will be a great a tragedy in a way, because the old normal cannot be the new normal. We don't want to return to uh, December of 2019, right? And say, okay, let's pick up where we left off. You know, we have to learn and internalize and then build on the lessons of this of this time. You know, that people are ultimately what matters. We are all connected. We are all uniquely vulnerable. We have survived, hopefully, I mean, we're still in it, but we're hopefully surviving this particular pandemic, but there will be others to come. We all face the greatest pandemic there is, which is climate change. We discovered in ourselves the ability to act rapidly and pivot and accomplish things in weeks that we thought would take months or years. Right. Uh, now we need to apply that same learning and, and that energy towards addressing the biggest challenge we face, the existential threat that we face on climate change and also species extinction and all the other related things. Right. So we have to use all of that. And that's really the focus of my work now is to work with leaders and get them to slow down and to reflect and to look inward and to understand what needs to heal within, right? Because I believe, as I said, we all are living with post-traumatic stress injury and we need to heal from that. And so uh, making time for you need to slow down in order to speed up. Because yeah, there is a sense of urgency. You know, we've got, this is the decade of determination, as they say. If we don't do the right things by 2030, probably it's gonna to be too late to reverse or to slow down some of those mega changes. So we, but, but but in order to do that, we still have to step back and uh, you know and slow down and internalize those lessons, and then we can move.
How how important is is space in that equation? You know, that's been something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Can you do everything that you've just discussed? Can you pause, reflect, take time, process everything that's happened while still being in motion? Or does it require space? Does it require a deliberate pressing of pause? You know, I do believe it does. You know, you can try to uh, squeeze it in here and there and set aside an hour and, you know, or a few hours or a couple of days here and there. But I do believe that it benefits from that sustained amount of time and conscious uh, attention to these things. Working with a coach, for example, right? Taking time off to be in nature, be with yourself in silence. I mean, silence is such a profound experience especially if you can do it with a group of other people who are also going through silence and something magical that happens there. You know, in those four days, I had 45 pages of notes that it was just downloads coming to me, thoughts, you know, and my life kind of making sense in a way that I would never have had if I didn't make that time for myself. So I think this is one of the most important things, self-care uh, for leaders, focusing on your own growth, you know, becoming what we call a self-cleaning oven, periodically taking time, right, to uh, to look at yourself and and get the help we need, you know, coaches and others. As we say, you are your most important stakeholder as a leader. All of us doesn't matter if you're a leader or not, right? And you have to evolve yourself and heal yourself and work on yourself continuously. Um, Otherwise, you will not have the impact, the positive impact on other people. You can't because you will be reactive. You know, as Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And this is all about doing that, right? Understanding what are my, in my case, what are those traumas? What are those wounds? The father wound that I have, which is pretty profound. What are the wounds? You know, I have uh, talked about four kinds of trauma. So there's personal trauma, there's uh, family traumas things that happened in your extended family. There's ancestral trauma, things that happened in your lineage. And most people in this country, either they come from slaves or they come from slave owners. So there's trauma in the psyche, right? And, and that is passed on through epigenetics until you resolve it. We still are acting based upon those traumas, right? And then, of course, there's the collective trauma in the world the pandemic and the Ukraine and so forth. So we have to uh, face these things and, 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 and try to figure out you know, how to make sense of them and how to not be triggered by them, right? Not be reactive. You know, the whole thing is we, when you don't process these things, we end up in a very reactive place. Things happen and we react. And sometimes we don't even understand our own reactions because it's coming from some deeply seated you know, uh, thing and it's an amygdala hijack. Uh, and uh, you know, it's because of something your father said to you when you were eight or whatever, or your mother, you know, I mean, it could be, the mother wound can be even more profound. Uh, so, you know, life is difficult unless we do that self-cleaning with help. Now I woke up to an email from Brene Brown. I think it was yesterday. Um, not a personal email from Brene Brown, but a, a, a mass email from Brene Brown. And it was so interesting because it was everything that was on my mind. It was like she'd taken a snapshot of my brain, the thing that I, I hadn't wanted, the conversation that I hadn't wanted to have out loud, and she was having it. She was having it out loud with the courage and the articulate 
articulation that she has. And she said exactly what you're saying now. She said, you know, we all need to process. I am noticing that the space between stimulus and my response has has shortened to basically nothing. And for that reason, we are pressing pause for four months as an organization. Everybody is getting four weeks paid leave um, on top of their usual leave. And I'm taking some time out and it will be silence from us going forward because I need to take this space to process. And then we can come back having clear purpose again, being re-energized again, but also having taken everything that happened and and put it into some kind of order so that we can use it as opposed to you know just shoving it down shoving it down shoving it down keep keeping moving and it occurred to me the courage that it takes as a leader as a conscious leader to voice your own story amongst the rest of the information which is exactly what you're doing now which is exactly what she has done and is doing so beautifully and how hard that is for us as leaders to do because you are you are seen as the one that needs to be the captain of the ship the the one that nothing touches the invulnerable um the person who has the direction always in mind that keeps moving gives energy to the rest of the troops and i think that there's a real space now for leaders to start telling their stories of actually, no, this period of time was really hard. It was hard for all of us. And here's a particular moment that broke my heart and I'm still working through that. Do you see many good examples of that happening at the moment? Yeah, no, I think that's an incredibly important thing. You know, a leader is not, you know, a godlike figure with all the answers, right? Leader is another human being who has taken on the awesome responsibility of stewarding the lives, you know, that are, that are in the organization. And it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but as we say, vulnerability is not a liability, it's an ability. And you, if you as a leader, it's right in the word, right? It's vulnerability. As a leader, if you can model that, what I say is that there are two things that are locked away in the corporate closet. There is silent suffering, right? That people are walking around with burdens and challenges that if you could see a thought bubble over their head, you know, everybody you saw today, if you could actually, what's actually going on in their life and what they're worried about, it would break your heart. So silent suffering and there's unexpressed love and care. Human beings have a need to care, but our organizations are not places where generally that is expected or even, even uh, uh, tolerated in many cases, right? So both of those are locked away, but if you can release those, if you can allow people to show up as fully human and then allow people to show they're caring for each other, and if you model that as a leader from the top, that makes all the difference. So the best example right now of that is Satya Nadella at Microsoft. Now, Microsoft has had three CEOs in their history as a, uh, uh, as a public company. Bill Gates for 14 years, and then uh, Steve Ballmer for 14 years, and now Satya Nadella for the last eight. And if you look at that company, how it was under Bill Gates, the reflection of Bill Gates, right? He's brilliant, but he's arrogant. He yells at people, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard, and no tolerance for, you know, everybody became like a mini bill, right? That's that's what, uh, you know, was celebrated. Then you had Balmer. You know, well, Gates was a visionary, right? So he said, we want to put a computer on every desk powered by Microsoft software. And it's one of the rare instances where a company actually achieves, realizes its vision, achieves its purpose. 
by the time Bahamar came around, you know, there was no purpose other than profit because the purpose had been realized and he didn't have the wherewithal to say we need a, a new purpose, right? So it became all about the numbers and all about, you know, pushing people hard, you know, the Jack Welch playbook. And for 14 years, Microsoft basically treaded water. It went nowhere, became increasingly irrelevant in the world. They missed the mobile revolution. They missed the cloud revolution and all the you know, with, with Google Docs and all that, even their office products are becoming less relevant. And then he leaves and they put Satya Nadella in as CEO. And the first thing Satya does in an offside with the leadership team, he sits down and tells his story and talks about when he was young and his sister died and what impact that had on him, the struggles that he had growing up. Now he has a special, profoundly special needs son and what that has meant, his daughter also has some challenges, and how he has dealt with those and how he has tied to it. You know, and, and he talked about all of these. And by the way, his son just died uh, three weeks ago, you know, uh, that, that special needs son. But he opened himself up at a human level in a way that had never been done in Microsoft. And then all the other leaders started sharing their own journeys and challenges and pain points and all of that, you know, and it just created a whole different ethos there. And this company now, you know, he's created a new culture there, a culture of empathy for each other and for our customers and understand what their life is about and how we can help them. A new purpose that they've articulated and now makes them important and relevant again. Uh, a growth mindset, right, which is not about, in the past, they were all the experts and everybody sort of sat on their expertise, like, you know, this is what I know and this is what I can learn. Now it's about what can I learn? How can I evolve? You know? uh, his mantra is very simple. As a leader, you have to model, you have to coach, and you have to care. Model the behavior you want to see, coach other people to help them get there, and most importantly, care for people as human beings. Now, with this, he has completely transformed Microsoft, the culture. But if you look at their performance, you know, in those eight years, he has added about $2 trillion worth of market value. Microsoft has gone from being a, an irrelevant, has been sort of a declining, irrelevant uh, company, a threatened kingdom in a way, to now one of the world's two or three most valuable companies. Right? And he has created in, in eight years, $2 trillion. I mean, no leader has ever come close to anything like that in terms of value creation. But it makes perfect sense, right? If you look at it, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once we have safety, security, a sense of care around us, then we can move our way into the parts of our brain that can be innovative, come up with incredible new solutions. There's an energy once those needs are taken care of that we feel safe enough to move into those energetic states where the new and the best and the most cutting edge ideas are able to emerge. And that's what's happening. Microsoft is innovating and doing amazing things. Uh, and they're also, by the way, not just financially, if you look at Just Capital, which ranks companies on all kinds of social, environmental, etc., right? They are number one by far of all the companies in the world in Just Capital's ranking, right? Whether it comes to environment, uh, societal things, diversity, you know, future of work, flexibility, everything. They're firing on all cylinders as an organization, because they have a leader who's willing to be vulnerable, who's working on himself, who's bringing that ethos into this previously left brain, engineering dominated analytical, you know, company. Yeah, I was 
I was talking about leaders telling their stories. I was in a room probably about two weeks ago with a group of global leaders and we were talking about storytelling as, as a leadership skill. And I sent everybody off to various parts of the room to go and have a look at the stories that they, that they could be telling in terms of bringing their team back together and gluing their teams back together. And I went over to talk to one particular leader and I said, have you, you know, have you had a thought about any moments that you could be sharing with your team? And she said, and she was tearful. You know, she had tears in her eyes. She was obviously struggling. And she said, you know, the only moment I can think of is the moment where the day when all the music stopped and I knew that I was going to have to lose 50% of my team. And she said, but I can't tell that story because I won't be able to tell that story without getting very emotional. And, you know, I said to you, that story is the perfect story for you to tell. And you need to find a way that you can tell it. You need to process it yourself first and find a way that you can tell it from an intentional place and from a place of connection. But that is a story that needs to be told because every single member of your team would have had that exact same moment probably on that exact same day, knowing what was coming. And if she got emotional, that's fine. You know, we, we, we hide, we're afraid of many emotions, right? It seems like the only acceptable emotions in the workplace are anger and, and things like that. <clears throat> but I have to say, you know, you know Bob Chapman, and when I was <clears throat> thinking about whether I should write that book with him or about him, you know, initially I had said, no, I, I've got you know, other projects and I don't really have time. And I said, it's, uh, it's, you know, I said, yeah, there's lots of conscious companies. I can't write about each of them, right? So that was a little bit. He, but he was patient. He said, okay, when you're when you're ready, just come. He's in. a very determined man. Yeah. <laughs> he brought his private jet over to uh, to Boston and picked me up, and his team made a presentation on the flight, and then we landed in Phillips, Wisconsin, and they took me to a conference room, and I sat down with about uh, 14 uh, men, blue collar, middle aged men who worked in the company there and Bob left and all the other people left and that's just me and them. And I was there to learn what happened and what's the story here. And you know, these companies were acquired by Barry Miller. And so I just asked them a simple question. I said, tell me what your life was like before your company got acquired by Barry Miller, and then how it changed. And then I sit back and there's just silence. And then I look around and there are three or four people with tears streaming down their face. And I said, what did I do? <laughs> I asked a simple question. And then they started talking, you know, how life was before in these little towns and these manufacturing businesses, very cyclical and people get laid off, you know, every two, three years, you know, you get laid, you don't know if you're ever going to get hired back. And most people don't have any savings. And this guy said, we had a new baby and I got laid off and we had no savings and I was literally going to the football game, you know, on Sunday, picking up empty bottles and cans and returning them to the store to get some, a few dollars so I could buy infant formula for my baby, you know, I mean, my life was reduced to that. And then Mark Chapman bought our company, you know, and first thing he said is, <clears throat> we're going to pay people fairly and treat people superbly and compete globally right here in Phillips, Wisconsin. We're going to bring back the one third of the manufacturing that was sent to Brazil and we're going to bring it back to Wisconsin. Okay, I'm going to show you how it's done. And now we have time. 
you're going to do it, but we'll help you. We've done this. We know how to do this. And I said, so it's just nice. And now my family is thriving. My, we, you know, the mayor of Phillips, Wisconsin, pointed to Bob and said, that man saved our town. Because six or 700 people work in this company, and the whole population of the town is 1,400. So literally every person in this town depends on that company. If that company dies, this town dies. Right? And so they said, you know, when this company was struggling, other other buyers, potential buyers were circling us like vultures, saying, what can we pick out, you know? There's machines, there's buildings, there's land, but the people didn't matter. I said, Bob is circling us like a, a guardian angel, saying, how can I give these people a future? You know, is there any way that we can save this company and this town? And that's that was the energy there, right? So again, they jokingly say at Miller, we measure success in man tears. Okay. Oh, hang on. Just, I need to stop you there. We we measure success in man tears. Yes. You know. Wow. I've I've never heard Bob say that. I've never heard that before. Well, his people said that to me, because they don't shy away from that. Their leadership programs are full of tears of people sharing deep personal things, right? Because I I said if you can create a culture in which middle-aged blue-collar men with less than a high school education are comfortable showing this depth of emotion in front of each other, we've created something special. I mean, that's kind of what sold me on writing. I, at the end of those two days, I said, Bob, this is a book that has to be written and I want to be the one to write it because I haven't seen anything like this anywhere else, you know? And so, uh, and, and you know, Bob really was the inspiration uh, for the healing organization because uh, I think about three, four years ago, I was with him somewhere and I asked him how he was doing and he said, oh, we're looking at about 10 to 12 acquisitions this year. So I'm busy flying all over Europe and all over the world, you know, it's 18 hour days. And I said, Bob, you know, you have 26 children and grandchildren, right? And at last count, you had 108 companies. Now you will have 120 when you buy these, right? I said, when the number of companies far exceeds the number of children and grandchildren, maybe you have enough. You know, I know that you don't need the money. You know, you've got two jets and you've got eight homes and you've got all the things. Why aren't you just enjoying your life? Why do you need the hassle? And he says to me, Raj, I don't know how much time I have left. And on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we built or the money we made. I will be proud of the lives we touched. And before I'm gone, I want to touch as many lives as possible. And I said, Bob, you're not growing a business. You're spreading a healing ministry. Because when Barry Waymiller and Bob Chapman come to town, people have hope. People feel they have a future. Their children have a future. And I said, this is, a, you know, you're spreading healing in the world. It's like a ministry. So that, that idea then expanded into you know, what if that is, in fact, the underlying purpose of business is to heal. Because in a free society, governments don't take care of us. Businesses are given the opportunity. Governments create the infrastructure for businesses to step in and understand people's needs and fulfill those needs. And I said, if you actually deeply, in a caring way, meet somebody's real needs, you are healing them in that dimension, right? They need shelter, you're giving them shelter. They need sustenance, you're giving, you know, healing them in that dimension. So if you do business with that energy, I'm here to express myself and serve others care for others. That's the purpose of our life. Business is a way I can do that at scale. Right? 
it fundamentally becomes about healing. But if I think of business as I'm going to use people to make money for myself and accumulate power for myself, then I'm going to create suffering. Same business, same products, same services, same people. Now it's a place of suffering. Why? Because as a leader, I've thought of it that way, right? And uh, it becomes exploitative. So, so I think that fundamentally to me is the message. Business is, you know, the human default human purpose is to give and to grow, as Richard Lighter says. That's the default business purpose as well. How much can we give? How much can we care? Right? And can we scale that? Right? And how do we grow? This is now an obligation to grow, not a compulsion to grow. Bob Chapman feels a sense of urgency and an obligation to get on that plane and buy some more companies because you know, there's an urgency. There are people who need saving and helping. Other companies have a compulsion to grow. I've got 18 billion, but that only makes me number 32 on the Forbes list, you know? <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you, probably might give me my last question today, is that you've spent an entire career driving a conversation, a conversation that, you know, is so apparent that you're deeply passionate about and every touch point that people can connect in with your work. What have you, what have you learned about that process? What have you learned about getting an idea out there into the world and then trying to spread it at scale, which is essentially what you've, what you've been doing. Has that journey given you any lessons that somebody else potentially who's out there that feels the same burning passion and desire that you feel and wants to get their ideas out there can start to put into motion? Well, I think in my case, it was finding the right partners. You know, I mean, I had that idea and I was meeting some CEOs here in Boston and you had nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they said, capitalism, what are you talking about capitalism? Why don't you just work with one company and, you know, just help them improve a little bit? You know, uh, People weren't seeing a bigger picture. It was only when I met John Mackey that I found the right partner with, you know, as, a, as the founder and CEO of one of the iconic companies in America, Whole Foods Market. You know, he had a very, very visible position in the world and role in the world and identity. And so finding the right partner, number one, and secondly, then uh, deciding to create a movement or try to create a movement around it. Right. So after I met John and I shared my vision for the Institute for New Capitalism and we decided we were going to try to launch Conscious Capitalism, we had a retreat at his ranch and then we had our first conference. And then we decided to create a nonprofit and and try to then formally spread this idea you know as a movement so it took year i mean you know for many years it was barely noticed and but then if you fast forward to 2019 you know suddenly it's like we've reached our berlin wall moment you know a tipping point that now what seemed to people ludicrous uh, becomes obvious yeah of course you have to think about stakeholders of course you need to have a purpose in your life you can't just make it about money what kind of a life is that, right? But yet, that's the uh, delusion we were living under until then. So I think very rapidly now there's a paradigm shift that is happening. But it took years, and you know we were not the only such movement out there. There's other, you know, there's inclusive capitalism, and there's you know B Corps and BTM. People are doing good work, which is related uh, to this. But it's all come to a head, and uh, and so I think it it calls for what. Another phrase I learned from Barry Vaynerchuk: courageous patience. You, know, you want to see it all happen overnight, right? But if anything significant takes time, you don't plant an oak tree and then tug on it every day saying, why aren't you grown already? 
you know, you, uh, you, you give, it, give it the time and, and the perseverance. If you truly believe in it, you know, stay true to that. I mean, I traveled all over the world and to help set up these chapters and, you know, I was 80, 90, 100 talks a year, you know, for many years doing my part and then writing these books and said all of us were doing our parts, you know, because we believed in it so passionately, but also it, it, it nurtured us and it mattered to us so much. This was the most meaningful thing in my life, you know, uh, this work, and I saw the impact it had. And then it was basically a matter of connecting these islands to each other, right? Because you'd have a group in Sao Paulo and you'd have a group in, uh, you know, in Sydney and so forth. And, you know, they're all ultimately, they're all hearing the same tune. And it's, everybody says, I found my tribe, you know, I've come home. And, and that's really, I think, the, the power of this because there are a lot of people who have felt out of place and, you know, Amy Powell, my Australian, who, who actually used to live in Sydney, you know, she came across Funds of Endearment at a very low point in her life. Her marriage was falling apart, her business was falling apart, you know, everything was, she didn't know what she was going to do. And then she found that book and it gave her a new lease on life and said, wow, I can get behind something like this. And she flew and came to our conference and then they set up the first international conference uh, chapter of conscious capitalism was in australia way back you know so i think it's uh it's a matter of staying true to if you truly believe in it and and uh persevering through those obstacles and making small progress and eventually if the idea has has power and merit it will find its place and i just love that that phrase courageous patience Courageous patience because patience takes courage because the the predominant narrative out there in the world is speed. It is hustle. It's if you haven't, you know, made it in a year, two years, then it's obviously a failure and, you know, you must start something else. There needs to be trajectory, momentum, and to care deeply enough about something to have courageous patience is, is I think almost a um a revolutionary act mm -hmm. yeah in our world it is yeah um finally the for any leaders out there who are coming you know teams are coming back together organizations are coming back together trying to you know, tentatively take next steps and wanting to be healing leaders wanting to be conscious leaders in this next chapter whatever that looks like what's the What's the one piece of guidance or advice that you would want them to know? Well, I would want them to go back to fundamentals, right? And re-ask the fundamental questions of why, what, who, and how of what we're doing here, right? Why do we exist as a company? Why do we need to exist? What do we do that's needed in this world, right? That's the question of purpose. And even if you have a purpose, it may be time to revisit that in light of how the world has evolved, right? What do we do? What do we focus on? It's not just shareholder value, right? It's creating value and uplifting all the stakeholders. Who are we as, as leaders and as people, right? Um, and then how does it feel to work around here? So all of those questions, we have different answers that, that are needed today than in the past. And, and then if they need guidance, of course, we have the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide, which is tools for transforming the organization. And there's plenty of experts out there that can help with, with purpose or with stakeholders or leadership or culture. So, But getting started on that journey, it takes commitment from the top. 
you know, this change does not happen bottom up or middle out. This change requires commitment at the top, which is the CEO, uh, his or her leadership team, and the board of directors, if it's a public company or even if it's a private company. Uh, all of them have to be on board and they have to want to do this for the right reason. This is a very critical point. You know, our research, my research and others shows that this way of being does create more value for shareholders in the long run. In my case, it showed dramatically higher value for shareholders. And so a lot of leaders will look at chapter six and say, wow, financial reserves. Wow, that's amazing. Right. So we want to do this because it makes more money. And I say to them, well, if that's your only reason for doing it, it probably will not work. Because you have to want to do the right things for the right reasons. People can see through when you're just using it. You know, these are not tactics. These are tenets. Tactic is a way to achieve something else. These tenets are pillars of fundamental belief that, yes, there must be purpose in the human life. Yes, everybody matters and everybody needs to win, right? Yes, my job as a leader is not to use people to achieve my goals. That's a tyrant. That's not a leader. That is to take people to a better place, etc. So these are tenets, pillars of fundamental belief. And if you don't believe those, then don't pretend that you do. Because people have been burnt many times. People are already cynical, and this has become even more cynical, right? So you have to look deep within. If you're not ready to do this for the right reasons, please don't do it. My friend Fred Kaufman uses a, a good analogy for that. You know, it's a few years ago, there was a smiley face on the cover of Harvard Business Review, one of those yellow smiley faces, and it said, happiness is profitable. Right? So the CEO said, okay, how do we get some happiness around here, right? How do we, is it, is it uh, you know, do we need beer? Do we need uh, ping pong tables? Like, what do we need? <laughs> so if you do it for that reason, because it's going to make you more profits, right? Then it's not really caring about people's happiness, right? So it's like asking somebody to marry you. And she says, why do you want to marry me? And you say, well, I read that married men live five years longer. And they make 30% more money in their lifetime. You know? So there's a good business case. <laughs> you know, I'm laughing right now because when my now husband, 15 years ago, first asked me to move in with him, you know, he's kind of shy and he's quite introverted. And I'm, it wasn't what he intended to say, but what he said was that I think we should move in together. We would save a lot of money on petrol. Right. <laughs> keep driving between each other's homes. And I remember sitting there, at the, we were out for dinner, and I remember sitting there and just looking at him and thinking, really? Like, really? <laughs> and I remember saying, you know what, if that's the only reason, I think you need to go away and yeah. think harder about that and maybe come back to the table <laughs> with something better. Yeah, so we, we should do this for love as we should you know, do everything for love, right? So. So ultimately, yeah, that's we have to do the right things for the right reasons. But you know, it's a, it's a it's a joyful journey. You know, it's the most satisfying thing a human being can do is to have a positive impact on the lives of others and to see that, you know, group of people flourish over time, and the communities and their children and everybody. I mean, it's it's it's. I don't think our life offers deeper satisfaction than that. Well, Raj, thank you. Thank you for your time, your work. I can't, um, I can't wait for your new book to eventually hit the shelves. I was lucky enough for you to hold up the manuscript before we got started today and to read the title. And it feels like this is the culmination of 
your journey and your voice and it's going to be very exciting when it when it goes out into the world whenever the time is right so thank you thank you for your time it's been such a pleasure same here julie thank you very much for that thoughtful conversation and those wonderful questions and for the work that you're doing in the world thank you Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.